And now for something completely different. Ah! Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And good morning and welcome to the show. Of course, it's the hump day edition of The Real Investment Show. Glad you're joining us this morning on your way to work or whatever you're doing, of course, if you're watching us on live stream. Congratulations, you're not at work right now. So, uh, But anyway, as we get ready to kind of uh, wrap up this week already, week kind of going by quickly, and uh, we are now right in the midst of earnings season. Yesterday, Netflix reporting earnings after the bell. Stock holding up here um, a little bit. Missed on subscriber growth and, of course, uh, really focused more on profitability now. And again, outlook wasn't great for the company, but again, stock's been holding up here, you know, fairly well overnight. So again, that's going to kind of uh, not drag as much on, on the NASDAQ as, as was initially thought. But futures are pointing lower this morning, and that's just a function of, you know, kind of where the market is. We've had a, a decent rally over the last four weeks. So again, market's kind of starting to get to that point where kind of running out of gas. And, and if you think about how market advances work, and we tend to forget about this over time, is that you know markets don't just go up and they just don't go down. And we tend to kind of get into this attitude that markets only go in one direction and they've got to do something, they've got to do this or that. But really what happens is that markets work on very short-term cycles. We've talked about this before on the show called bull stampedes and bear stampedes. And this is where you get a, a spat of buying or a spat of selling that comes along. Um, and these generally last 15 to 20 trading sessions on average. So, you know, if you kind of look at that, that's about four or five weeks on average that you get a rally in, uh, in the markets and you get a little bit of a pullback and then you get another rally and then another pullback, so forth and so on. And that's just, kind of the way markets work over time. And so we've had about a four week advance here. If you kind of think about a car, you fill it up with gas and you're gonna go take a trip. Well, eventually you're gonna run out of gas. Markets kind of work the same way. We've had a rally now for about four or five weeks. Markets kind of starting to run out of gas here a little bit. So a little bit of a respite here, a little bit of a pullback wouldn't be surprising at all. And that would kind of help set the market up for whatever it's going to do next uh, in one direction or the other. Um, but speaking of that, I thought this was interesting this morning. You know, lot, again, we've talked about this lately. You know, this is a, you know, a, a lot of, of negative commentary right now. Yesterday, more articles out about coming recession. And, and there's certainly plenty of evidence to that degree. And we touched on this yesterday, this whole idea of rolling recessions, right? Uh, and that may be allowing the market to try to absorb some of these events. And, and it's just been a constant series of events really since January of last year, starting with Russia, Ukraine in March, and then, you know, kind of going from there. Um, we had big fallouts in the NASDAQ, a lot of stocks, the, the SPACs, the IPOs. It was just kind of one kind of rolling Bitcoin last year, uh, kind of one rolling disaster after another um, as the Fed was hiking interest rates. Markets would sell off and then they would rally back on hopes of a pivot. And then Fed would say, nope, no pivot. And we'd sell off again. And it was pretty much just a very rough year last year. And markets declined you know, back to the, the long-term 200-week moving average, we found support right there. Uh, market has been rallying, you know, since then, now back above the 40-week moving averages. Um, and, and this is just kind of that ongoing movement of the markets. And, and this is 
while there's a lot of real bearish sentiment, as we talked about yesterday, the markets continue to perform actually rather bullishly. The long-term bullish trend going back to 2009, still very much intact along that 200-week um, moving average. Uh, market is consistently trading above the 40-week moving average. That typically leads to higher prices when that occurs, and we're currently above that 40-week moving average now. So again, you know, the underlying bullish action of the market is certainly there. But there's certainly plenty of concerns, as we said yesterday, about you know, issues that are facing the economy, tighter bank lending standards, rising recessionary risks, these type of things, which certainly run contrary to this idea that stocks are performing more bullishly and holding up here. So again, you know, markets are doing fine right now. There's nothing wrong with the market at the moment, technically. Um, and as we kind of you know, go through this earnings season, over the next two weeks, we're going to have a bulk of the S&P reporting. We're going to get a really good handle on kind of where earnings are and, more importantly, what kind of forecasts are for the rest of this year. Um, but that's also going to kind of set us up here. Again, we, you know, we're working on a fifth week of advances right now. If the market can hold here where we are, potentially move a little bit higher by uh, the end of the week, um, we're going to have another week of advances, right? So fifth week of advances, that, that's a fairly long stretch. So again, uh, you know, getting a week or two here where the market sells off a bit, kind of resets itself, certainly won't be surprising. And again, that's going to happen. We're going to get this sell-off. And despite all of the other news, look, and again, if we kind of go back and look at the long-term trend of the markets right now, again, bullish, uh, bullishness is still in, in play here, still, still moving higher doesn't mean that we can't get a 5 or 10% correction. A 10% correction would pull us right back to the 200-week uh, moving average, that long-term bullish trend support. So again, a correction of 10% would not be a surprise at all. In fact, in, fact, in any given year, a correction of 5 to 10% is normal. So a, a, a correction here, so if we get into a weaker spat of economic growth this year, um, so some other event occurs, uh, you know, another bank failure, whatever it is, and the market sells off 10% here, don't be surprised. That's going to be, that, that's well within the context of normality. That'll put us back to this long-term bullish trend. And if the market holds there, then of course, that'll be your next buying opportunity as well. So again, we have to put all this into context and think about kind of where we are and kind of what happens next. Again, I have no idea what's going to happen six months from now, nor does anybody else. <laughs> And so all we can really pay attention to is what is the market telling us? And right now the market is telling us that, well, the trend is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Again, when that changes, then we'll certainly want to change accordingly. If we wind up taking out this 200-week moving average and then setting a series of lower lows after that, we've got a real problem on our hands. And that's going to certainly warrant a much reduced equity exposure at that point. But right now there's no indication of that. So betting on that to happen may not work out very well for you. So again, we just, and this is why we focus a lot on technicals. Look, the fundamentals are important. Stocks are still expensive. Um, earnings are definitely declining and they're likely gonna weaken even more as we get through further this year. As the economy slows down, as inflation falls, that's certainly gonna weigh on earnings. And that would certainly kind of foster this idea of another 10% decline in the markets as markets readjust for those lower earnings and lower profit margins. But that doesn't necessarily mean that stocks have to decline another 30%. They could, but it doesn't mean they have to. 
Again, this is how markets work over time, and this is how we have to, to pay attention to things and, and how we have to manage our money over time. Again, it's not about being bullish or bearish. It's about just understanding what market dynamics are doing. And this is what market dynamics are doing right now, and that doesn't necessarily agree with a lot of the <clears throat> more negative forecasts out there. Reading an article yesterday, you know, that, you know, the, the end of economic civilization is just around the corner. And, and that's certainly not what markets are saying is coming right now. So again, this is, this is why it's important to just try to separate the, the reality of what's happening versus what prognostications are. And look, it's fine to have prognostications. It's fine to talk about whatever it is that you think is gonna come down the road here. That's okay. But that doesn't necessarily mean that's what markets agree with you um, on. And importantly, when we make money, we have to agree with what the markets are saying more than what we believe. That's always the, that's always the big challenge. So again, just kind of pay attention to this is that, look, right now, bullish trends still firmly in track. Nothing wrong with that. Coming up on the show this morning, we're going to get with Danny Ratliff, talk about taxes, talk about, because obviously tax day yesterday. Um, where's a lot of that tax money going? That's one of the big questions. Um, we'll talk about that this morning and, uh, and more right here on The Real Investment Show. Don't go away. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Retirement's not what it used to be, and knowing how health insurance works after you leave your job is vital. Our next Lunch and Learn will tackle transitioning to Medicare. Thursday, May 11th, with Danny Ratliff and Richard Rosso. How will Medicare work with the insurance you already have? What are the deadlines you need to know for signing up for Medicare? Register now for our Transitioning to Medicare Lunch and learn with Ratliff and Rosso at realinvestmentadvice.com. Realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show. And welcome back to the show this morning. I'm your host, Lance Roberts. Sadie Ratliff joining me as well. So tax day yesterday, uh, if you didn't get your taxes done, you're too late, <laughs> but you need to get an extension filed. You're not too late. You're just not on time. <laughs> and there's a penalty for that. Correct. <laughs> so I need to try that around my house. When my wife's late somewhere, I'm going to start charging her a penalty. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah so I was like, wondering why that cot was in the office. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Uh, yeah, anyway. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, taxes due yesterday. Interesting story out this morning uh, from CNBC talking about the government wastes $247 billion a year in taxes. And, and I thought that was interesting because, you know, in any business, if you, you know, just kind of just send money here or there or whatever, you eventually go out of business. You just can't print more. And kind of in government, it's just this idea of spend more money. And if you didn't spend enough, spend more money. But, you know, it's things like they ordered $28 million worth of uh, forest camouflage uniforms for the military for Afghanistan, a desert environment. 
Um, and so it was just $28 million wasted that they couldn't get back. They are, they fraudulently, they erroneously just send checks and payments to people that, you know, they didn't owe money to, or they had a contract with previously and they keep paying them even after the contract's over. Just simple clerical er errors that the government accountability office has, you know, just uncovers on a regular basis, but nothing really gets done with it because the government accountability office really doesn't have much power or manpower to force Congress into making changes on spending and budgets. But this has totaled up to trillions of dollars worth of spending over the last two decades that has simply just been wasted and, and gone. And this is just taxpayer dollars. So all these tax dollars you're paying in, you complain about where they go. A big chunk of it just goes to waste every year. $247 billion is not left pocket change, yeah, by the way. Just in 2022. Yeah. You got to love the timing of these articles when they come out when everybody's writing checks to the government. <laughs> They become even more frustrating. <laughs> exactly. But you know what? And here's something I don't understand about the IRS, right? What is this annual game that we have going on? Now, look, we have all of our W-2s, 1099s, all those type of things the IRS has. And you know they have it because when you submit your taxes, if you fail to report a 1099, they come back to you and say, uh, yeah, this uh, 1099 that you got from you know ABC company was missing. You didn't report that. Well, if you have that information, why am I guessing at what taxes I owe every year? Why don't you just tell me what I owe you, and then we'll just call it that. <laughs> right? Well, I think that they should at least have a system where it reports, hey, here's what we have for you. Are we missing something? But at the end of the day, you no, still... No, you're not missing anything. That's absolutely correct. <laughs> well, listen, we don't want to play that game, right? There's There shouldn't be too many gray areas with that. Now, where the gray right. areas would, would, would pop up and why we have, we're not just paying exactly what they say is because your standard deduction, your, well, no, that's not, your that's itemizing... Not, but to your point, tell me what you think I owe you and correct. then I'll debate you. Don't make me guess at what I think I owe you. Yeah, right? that's right. That's right. But then you may have smaller partnerships that aren't necessarily reporting properly, uh, sure. LLCs, things like that, where they are relying on you to provide that information. But yeah, it, it's super frustrating. But even more frustrating talking about the over, you know, overspending in general, just from simple single payment errors, was $2.4 over the last two decades. Yeah. So Government Accountability Office is supposed to go in and, and kind of you know, balance the books, so to speak, which yeah, we know that the government you, doesn't do a very good job of that ever. That, that would be the accountability part of that title. <laughs> yeah, which is which is clearly undermanned, understaffed, or just negligent, right? Right. I mean, there's there's a problem somewhere along the way, and they're finding duplicate checks, checks that were, like you said, to contractors, people that weren't supposed to continue to get be receiving funds, but yet they still get the money. Now, I'm curious, though, when the Government Accountability Office comes through, are they going back and are they reclaiming those funds? No. For it? And that's that's that apparently that's the problem is that they don't have the manpower or the, the the power, I guess, to go back and reclaim those funds. So we just hired how many IRS agents? A, a lot. Eighty thousand? Something like that. Eighty thousand. Why are we not putting them on something like this? And we're so concerned about taxing the rich, which we know are already paying the majority of taxes. A large percentage of the population pays no taxes whatsoever. Right. Why are we not going out? after money that they are erroneously spending. And why are we not holding them accountable? Don't get me Sorry. Fired. Yeah, I know you're, you're just going to get me fired up here. Yeah, so we probably all quiet. get audited now. Great. <laughs> there you go. Making sense again. <laughs> so, but, but look, it, it, you know, this is, this is kind of the ongoing issue about taxation in general. You know, if you take a look at the top 10% of income, income earners, they pay about 90% of the taxes, but yet we feel like they don't pay enough in taxes. <clears throat> so, you know, it, it's one of those challenges where, you know, 
our, our tax system, you know, is there and it's, you know, you, you know, extremely complex, which allows for a lot of the things that we all complain about. But again, you know, uh, that we're going after, you know, President Trump for taxes as an example, right? And, you know, or Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk, you know, all these other individuals, you know, the tax code is the tax code. And as long as you're playing by the tax code, yes, there's a lot of benefits. If you've got a really good tax accountant and you're and you set yourself up properly, uh, you can you can reduce or eliminate a lot of your taxations. And and there's a there's a lot of videos going around the Internet right now that and a lot of them are are erroneous. So be careful with them. Correct. But, you know, you can set up LLCs that you can use to help shelter some assets. We talk about this a lot. If you if you own rental properties, so don't, don't put those in your personal name. Put those into an LLC. You get the benefits of tax write-offs, expenses for the house, et cetera, and you can lower your taxable income. So, you know, this is what people with wealth do is they, they find accountants that understand the tax code and make the tax code work for them. And where the bottom 80% of income earners are basically going on to Intuit and going, okay, here's my 1040 and here's what I owe in tax. Okay, here's, here's what I pay. You know, you can. There are advantages to understanding the tax code and working with somebody that can do that. You can wind up saving a lot of money, particularly if you're a higher income earner. Yeah, but be really careful. A lot of times, yeah. it, we make it more difficult than it has to be. So, you know, I saw something the other day. You mentioned these erroneous videos. Yeah, and they're like, a lot. okay, so here's what the rich do. You're going to go set up an LLC in the Bahamas. Then you're going to go set up another one in Wyoming. You're going to own this and that. Well, most people don't own all of that. Number exactly. one. And here's how you're going to not pay taxes. But I will tell you exactly how to do it for a small fee of $249 a month. <laughs> yeah. Up front for the next five years. Yeah, exactly. There, there's always a little hook to this. I like the ones now where it's like set up an LLC and then the government will give you a loan um, you know, to fund the LLC. It doesn't quite work that way. Well, clearly the government accountability <laughs> office is not checking this out. So, you know, there may be something to that one. It could, that actually could be. Exactly. I mean, so, so they're still spending $1.7 in maintaining empty government buildings. That, that one, though, is, is probably true. Um, even if they vacate the building, if their lease Correct. You know, is for a certain period of time. And again, the government tends to kind of lease things for very long periods. So, yeah, not surprising they're having to maintain some of those. That they're well, maybe using. you could put some of those IRS agents in there. That I'm, I'm, I don't know. I'm sure that may be the case. <laughs> They're probably working from home. <laughs> anyway, all right. A uh, couple of things this morning. Uh, one of the things that we need to get into, of course, and, and really kind of talking about taxation as well, is you know a lot of individuals are now kind of you know moving towards that retirement age. In fact, I saw an interesting study out this morning talking about working past the age of 65 um, by race. And it was kind of going through Asians, Hispanics, uh, whites, uh, African-Americans, and, and when they plan to retire. And a big chunk of people uh, in this survey all plan to retire by 65. It's still kind of that, that age, right? We kind of all look at it. Man, if I could just get to 65, I can retire. And it's going to be easy living after that. Of course, what really turns out to happen is that we all wind up working well past the age of 65 because – we can't make ends meet, but that really kind of brings us up to, to you know, you know, planning. You know, again, we, we talk a lot about planning for retirement, making sure you have a plan, making sure you understand what that plan is. Because, again, retirement, when we speak about it, is this very nebulous thing. I'm going to retire at 65. Okay, great. But what does that mean? 
does that mean no working at all? Like you're just going to sit on your front porch with your dog named Bo and, you know, throw rocks at the squirrels? I mean, or does that mean you're just going to do something else that you really want to do and you're not going to work for the man anymore? Um, so what does that mean? And then also, what does that mean in terms of income? What do you need to live on? And then again, this is one thing that we do a very poor job of, and, and particularly in the financial media, they're the worst, is that you have all these articles out about, oh, if you can, you know, if you'll just, depending on what age you are, if you'll save this much money a month and make 12% a year on your investments, you can have a million dollars by the time you retire. Well, that's great, but will a million dollars do the trick? Right? This is the one thing that we never talk about anymore is like, well, if a million dollars will generate 4% a year, can I live on $40,000 a year in retirement, including my Social Security? For some people, absolutely. Some people may be able to retire on half that much, right? Maybe they have 500000 in the bank and they live a lifestyle that can be supported by the income that that 500000 can generate. Or is it going to require more? It depends on what your level of income is going to be at retirement. So when we come back from the break, though, I kind of want to talk about this because this is one of the most important strategies, you know, kind of coming up now. But thinking about retirement and potentially having to navigate retirement in the near future, given all the uncertainty in the markets, the world economy, geopolitics, et cetera, uh, we'll talk about the most important strategy right after the break. So don't go away. Um, be right back with Dana Rally. Oh, by the way, get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Uh, Michael Leibowitz, second part of his article on why the death of the dollar is not happening is on the website now uh, at realinvestmentadvice.com. So go check that out as well if you've been getting a lot of these death of the dollar stories lately. We go through two parts of why that's not the case. Anyway, be right back. I'm your host, Lance Roberts with Danny Ratliff. Don't go away. advice blog it's required reading for the informed investor catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com Welcome back to so this morning. Uh, market futures pointing a little bit lower this morning. Dow's down about 91. S&P's down about 17. NASDAQ's about 90, down to about 91 cents, uh, 91 uh, points this morning. Um, earnings coming in, mostly companies beating pretty handily estimates and not really surprising because, again, we lowered estimates so much, everybody gets a trophy, right? So Morgan Stanley, Travelers, others all kind of beating estimates this morning. So again, we'll see how that carries through. Again, it's the outlook that's going to be more important um, as we kind of start hearing what the CEOs say about the outlook for the near-term future. Uh, are they expecting improvement? That's going to be the big question here um, for the markets. Um, 
But just for the break, talking a little bit about you know retirement at you know at the age of sixty five and, and and or whenever whenever you're thinking about retiring. But uh, again, recent survey shows a lot of people expecting to retire at sixty five. Again, not everyone. A uh, big chunk of the people. It's 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 the the survey was retire at sixty five. Don't know or not retiring at sixty five. And and so. The majority of people say they're retired by they have they have the anticipation of retiring by sixty five. Big chunks say they're not going to retire sixty five because they understand they can't. Right? It's just they're going to have to keep working. Um, you know, but this is one of the the kind of the points that we're at right now because there's a couple of things that are going on that certainly impact potential retirement plans. And one of that is higher interest rates. There's it's kind of a, a dual soared with interest rates, higher interest rates, obviously impacting um, market returns, but also provides you the ability to lock in higher incomes with things like annuities or CDs or, or bonds, et cetera. So again, it depends on your time frame to a retirement, but there are certainly things to think about. Um, you know, and this is kind of the the important thing about having some understanding. And you know, we talk a lot on the show. Rich and uh, Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff on Fridays talk a lot about financial planning, healthcare, Medicare, Social Security. We have seminars and webinars on this stuff all the time because you know this is a big part of the planning process of, of preparing for that retirement. But for so many of us, um, we don't really have a plan. We don't really know when we can retire with any type of real certainty, et cetera. So it's kind of just you know throwing a dart at a dartboard and saying, yeah, I'm gonna retire at 65, but I really have no idea what that's gonna look like. And that's and that's really more important now than ever because because of higher inflation rates, because of higher interest rates, that changes some of the dynamics about what that financial plan and financial future will look like. And and this is really kind of you know banking stresses. That's another another issue right now as well but this is also kind of part and parcel of, of planning for that and the most important strategies for retirees right now well i think one of the bigger issues is that everybody expects to retire at 50 at 65 but typically people are retiring earlier and so depending on on the year i think the pandemic has probably accelerated that a tad bit it's interested to see the new numbers that are coming out but this is important because if, if we're retiring actually earlier and what does retirement really look like? You mentioned this. No. Is it truly you are done? You're no no longer working. Human capital is I'm gone. Sixty five. Yeah, no, I'm not. done. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just pulled up your plan, Lance. It just says it doesn't work. I know it doesn't. My plan never works Man, for some reason. I know my plan is perpetually broken. <laughs> it is perpetually broken. I'm sorry. I wish. We had somebody better to work on this for you, but <laughs> I understand. Uh, but but I think this is a this is one of the tough things that for many people because retirement has evolved su substantially, and I think that's something that will will likely continue as we're kind of navigating this economy and not really knowing exactly what to expect. There's a lot of turbulence out there right now, and so with the unknown and the uncertainty, I think people are a little bit more inclined to cut back when they can or where they can, but also continue to work. So we're seeing a lot of people, if they can delay retirement, they're trying to do so, or they're finding that side gig. And I think that's going to be more prevalent in the future as people, maybe they do retire early. We've talked about this you know, quite a bit, mm -hmm. that you've got this generation that's taking care of parents, that's taking care of children, um, a lot on their plate. So you know, last segment you mentioned, how do you navigate all of this with the current interest rate environment? I think this is important. We're, I think there's a lot of people leaving a ton of money on the table. 
Number one, just from a savings account perspective. And we can get into that a little bit here in a bit. And, and some of the things that are going on, I'm actually a big fan of with, with the savings accounts, right? right? People taking money from banks that aren't paying you anything to institutions that are. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about what you should be looking for, maybe doing or not doing. But, um, you know, in this environment, we're seeing a lot of people, and we've done this as well. We're buying short-term treasuries, T-bills, trying to get a little bit of additional yield here. But are we getting closer to a time where we want to start locking in longer duration, getting, you know, maybe not getting as high of rates, obviously not with the yield curve still inverted. But when we start to look at planning, we have to be closer to rates peaking at some point. Mm -hmm. Right. Are we there? And, and should people begin to start adding duration to portfolios because of that? And maybe you don't, you don't time it perfect at the top, but longer term, you're going to have one, number one, lock in that income. Number two, appreciation, right? So, so for somebody right now in this environment, do you go ahead and start looking for the longer duration, start stepping out? Because what I'm seeing more and more people do is, you know, looking at short-term CDs, short-term treasuries. This has been easy. It's been nice to do, but we're still in, you know, where the short-term, shorter end of the yield curve is still, it's still climbing up a bit. And so we're seeing that creep shoot yesterday. We saw the three months shoot up by like 10 basis points. I'm not sure where it closed, but yeah. So I think people have been really inclined to, to lock in shorter term. What do you do and how do you start looking out for the future when well, you're no, planning for that? No, I think that's a huge mistake that people are making too, is that everybody's running out. It's like, oh, look, I can get 4% on a one-year T-bill. That's great. What do you can do after the one year's up, right? Um, you know, when you can lock in three, you know, three and a half, four percent 4% on a 10-year treasury, you know, particularly when rates were higher, that's what you should have been buying is buying long duration treasuries. Cause again, you're, you're locking in at least a 4% rate of return over the next 10 years. So if everything goes wrong, you've got a 4% net return on your money over the next 10 years. Uh, if interest rates fall, you're going to pick up a good bit of capital appreciation. So again, you know, people are very short sighted in general when it comes to investing and they run out and they just try to grab something that's really shorthanded and, and easy to do. And again, there was just, and it was and not surprising, right? It was all over the media, right? When your treasury bill is paying, like, why don't you do that right now? Because the market kind of sucks. I'll just throw my money over there. But the problem is, is what are you going to do when rates come back down again? And they will. Yeah. And yields will come down. And, and look, if you're in the camp, we're having a recession, yields are going to come back down to 1% or less if we have a recession. It's just, it's just a function of how yields will work. So it's going to be, um, you know, very interesting and again, this is the big debate right now: recession or no recession. Can the can the economy avoid a recession? If they if it can, then that may suggest that rates stay a little bit higher than than we would expect. But you know, over time, rates are a function of inflation and economic growth, and those are definitely slowing. So yields are ultimately going to come down, which is going to make it harder to generate yield from fixed income when you get into retirement. Yeah, and so I hear a lot of people saying, look, I'm going to go in and I'm going to invest. I'm going to buy these T-bills here for short-term or short-term CDs. I'm not going to worry about it later on. I'm going to go back in and buy stocks once those mature. I don't find that that's always the case, right? Especially right. because if we get into what many people think and we are in a recessionary environment, most people, I know you say you're going to go buy, most people won't, right? right? I mean, it's just human nature. We don't want to buy things when they're down. We're more inclined to purchase things when they've gone up versus when they've gone down. But, you know, number one fundamental rule, buy low, sell high. Mm -hmm. It's tough. That is very tough. Well, and again, this is this is always the psychology of the markets, right? When we come back down and look at how we behave as investors, um, Dalbar, uh, which is a company that, that studies investor behavior, 
Uh, they've been doing this. They, they publish an annual report every year. It just came out uh, just a, a month or so ago for, for last year. But going back 30 years, investors underperformed the market by about 4% on average. Um, and this is because of what they call the guess right ratio is that investors always guess wrong um, about what they expect the markets to do. Oh, market's going to go down because of all these reasons and then the market goes up or market's going to go up for all these reasons and then the market goes down. Um, you know, trying to predict the markets. And this is what I was talking about in the first segment. You know, there's a lot of bullish trends that are setting up in the markets that suggest markets are going to move higher. Now, it's hard to imagine in an environment where we're talking about bank stresses, inflation, Fed hiking interest rates, all this. There's certainly, and look, economic data, there's certainly lots of arguments against that. But the market's telling you one thing, and we're looking at all these other economic fundamental factors, which, look, one of them is going to be right. I don't know which one it's going to be. But then that's the problem. You know, we, we try to guess at which one's going to be right, and we tend to guess wrong. And that's what Dalbar shows us over time. And that has a big impact on our retirement. So this could be a good time to start adding that duration to portfolios with the understanding that, hey, this may, you may not time this perfect, but if we're looking out longer term, we want to lock in higher yields. I mean, we've been waiting for higher yields for over a decade, you know, to really see yields where we can we feel like we can keep up with inflation. Now, granted, Obviously, that's not the case at the moment. But over time, we're seeing that this has been a lot stickier than anticipated. But we're going to see this come down some over time. And so this would be one of those avenues that I think that are or, you know, areas that you could start to explore adding some of that duration to it. You know, you mentioned looking at annuities. You know, we're still seeing at this moment where a lot of people can go out and buy a single premium immediate annuity with a cash refund versus doing their defined benefit plan from work. And that's not, that has not always been the case. So, you know, there's there are options where there have not been options in a very, very long time. So I think it, it, it's worth exploring and understanding exactly where we are in this yield curve and the cycle that this may not go on forever. And clearly it will not. Right. But if you're in the camp of a recession, like you said, rates are going to come down. It's, we're getting close to needing to lock some things in is what I'm getting at. Don't, don't disagree. All right, quick break. We'll come back. Apple Pay has taken a new step in, a, in an interesting direction that could actually impact banks. Talk about that when we come back from the break. Don't go away. Investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. So I want to talk about uh, Apple Pay here real quick, but uh, just a second ago on uh, one of our news channels here in the studio, talking about Netflix, of course, who reported earnings last night. They're going to end their dvd by mail service which i didn't even realize was still a thing um that was going on but that got danny and i talking a, a little bit uh, off air about the you know about blockbuster and i remember when you know and there's one blockbuster left it's like in alaska and people still go there to hang out and talk with friends and things like that but that used to be the big thing on a friday night um in my house when we were growing when i had a lot of little kids was we take all the kids we go out to have dinner like a Chick-fil-A, um, <laughs> a 
because it was cheap then. It's not cheap anymore, but it was cheap back then. I could feed like the whole uh, the whole family for like ten bucks at McDonald's, right? Uh, but anyway, we take the kids out to eat, and we go to McDonald's uh, to Blockbuster and let them roam around, pick up movies, and we go home and watch movies as a family. And, and it was it was a lot of fun. It was it was kind of just good family time. And you know, I do kind of miss that part about Blockbuster. You know, we just don't have anything like that now. So, so interesting so I was, I was googling that while you were talking about it so there is one last one it's in oregon it's and, in oregon i thought it was alaska and i thought so too and now you can actually rent this out as an airbnb <laughs> yeah well you have a good movie selection apparently <laughs> i mean this is just i mean I, I, this is not verified so if there is one in alaska or wherever else so, sorry maybe yeah, yeah so that would be kind of cool though you rent out an airbnb that's an old blockbuster and then you just have you know a movie party you have every movie on the planet, pretty much. Yeah, so it offers uh, movie lovers in Bend, Oregon, a 90s-themed sleepover for a limited time, only on Airbnb. Interesting. Interesting. $60 billion. That's how much Charles Schwab, State Street, and M&T have suffered in lost deposits. Now, I don't know about M&T and, and State Street. Um, I don't, we don't really do a lot of business with them. But Schwab, we're intimately familiar with and not surprising. In fact, we've been in a big process of moving our client accounts from Schwab to Fidelity because of primarily one reason, which was money market rates. Money markets at Schwab pay, what, what was the, the latest read on that, 001 no, no. So, so the Schwab? average money market out there are U.S. savings accounts paying 0.37. But at Schwab, the problem was it's a retail investor versus an institutional investor. They give you a little bit more options. And we have options as well, but they don't make it as easy to use as other institutions where the, the well, basically the reserve account that they use for money market with institutions pays almost nothing. It's like 0.40, give or take. Yeah. Whereas, so we can go buy another money market, but... They it's don't, not liquid. It's not as it's still liquid. It's, well, it's just I mean, not it's, as it's, liquid. It's, it's where not we're a sweep trading. Yeah, exactly. Correct. It's not a sweep account. So this is something though that many people don't know about. So if we talk to people and and you know we see people that have accounts at different institutions, a lot of times they are sweeping you into their bank account. That yes, it's FDIC insured. That's great. Pays nothing. But it pays absolutely nothing. And versus so, versus other brokerage firms that pay for four and a quarter percent. Yeah. So, well, and, and they haven't always done that, but they're doing that now as yep. we're seeing rates increase, you know, money market at Fidelity right now is 4.51. Um, you can actually find and get some that pay more. They may not offer as, as a sweep, but you can certainly store money in other places and get a little bit of yield on it. So what we're seeing now is it's, it's interesting because the dynamic has shifted some. We've seen a lot of people who've been moving money from institutions that pay you nothing to someplace that will. And so, yeah, this people, is one thing that I love because I think that, look, we have to fight for every dollar we can get. Don't be lazy and leave it sitting somewhere where they're not passing that on to you. Yeah. So we're seeing a lot of financials where earnings have looked great. Looking at the big banks, big banks have actually picked up some market share because people have been scared, right? So since Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, all this news that's out, they're saying, well, shoot, I, I don't care. I, I just want my money to be safe. So I'll take it to the big institution. Uh, but... We're seeing a lot of people, and, and that's what the, the press is, uh, uh, this article is. But on the flip side, I'm seeing a lot of people who are taking money from those institutions yep. to put it in the money market to get more yield, to have more flexibility, to have more options. So, you know, the way I look at this is that 
you need to start moving funds. And so we were talking about last segment how, look, you know, maybe do you start going out longer in duration? Yes, absolutely. Do you also start looking out for uh, money markets that are actually going to pay you something? It's a no-brainer. Yep. Well, again, this is and this is something that people are becoming much more aware of now. And before, what they weren't really that aware of it, right? It's, it's because nobody paid anything on interest rates because the Fed had cut rates to zero, and nobody paid anything on money markets. Everybody took money out to go buy equities with it, which is kind of what the Fed wanted anyway. But now, all of a sudden, because we're talking about high interest rates, and 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 now every commercial you see coming on is a, we pay you know X percentage on our money market fund or whatever it is. You're now seeing this, and of course, the big news yesterday was Apple Pay, which has now launched a money market account of 4.15 percent, and this is through their relationship they have with Goldman Sachs. But think about all the users that have an Apple iPhone that can go into Apple Pay, and all of a sudden they've got access to a 4.15 percent money market account. How easy will it be to to swap money over into that account? And think how good that is for Apple on all their products. Because now it's like the money's right there. How easy is it to upgrade your phone or buy a new service or you know add to you know whatever it is that they're selling you? Certainly makes that access to that money a whole lot easier for them to sell you products. So genius move by Apple, which is why we continue to own Apple stock. Um, but again, this whole move to you know of, of incre- another option here. A 4.15% money market is going to start dragging more and more money from other banks. And the size of Apple, it's not going to take long for them to rack up a few billion dollars in assets. Yeah, if you go peruse their, their website, it's interesting. It's it's not actually too easy to find, but not, not that difficult. But, you know, 4.15 is, is really nice. But what Apple's doing, you have Apple Wallet. You can store just about yep. any and everything there. You have Apple Pay, so almost like a Vidmo or PayPal where you can use that. But you can also go up to a, a you know, a lot of... Uh, you know, checkouts and actually pay with your phone. I've seen and heard stories of people doing that where they, they leave their wallet, they use that. And then now this is just another kind of feather in their cap, I think. What's interesting to me, though, Lance, is that if you go to Marcus by Goldman Sachs right now, they're paying you 3.9% versus mm-hmm. with Apple, they'll allow 4.15. So I wonder what type of an agreement arrangement they have yeah. here. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the average U.S. bank account savings rate, I'm reading from an article, is just 0.37%, according to government data, versus the Fed benchmark of 4.75%. Schwab on Monday said deposits fell 11% or $41 billion in the first quarter or 30% year-on-year to $325.7 billion. Custody Bank, uh, State Street's total deposits fell 5%. And, of course, um, uh, $4 to $5 billion of outflows of non-interest-bearing deposits could leave in the second quarter. M&T reported bank total deposits climbed 3%. Um, but this is why these banks, by the way, are reporting like J.P. Morgan, you know, 49 percent increase net interest income because they're picking up that spread between what they pay you, 0.37, versus what they charge, and 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 are receiving from either the Federal Reserve in terms of of interest income on deposits or what they charge people that they loan money to. So that spread is where they pick up that net interest income, and when they're not paying you anything for storing your deposits. And they have a big spread on investment, of course, net interest income is jumping. And, and that's, but, you know, sustainability is also going to be a problem. You know, JP Morgan, yes, reported a huge jump in net interest income. But what happens when the Fed starts cutting rates? Now they're going to have their reports going, oh, we had a big decline in net interest income, and that's going to impact earnings. So again, it's a, it's, it's a two edged sword that is not going to stay for very long. But right now, there's an opportunity, like, like Danny said, to pick up some money on deposits 
all you do is just have to, you know, take some type of action to move some money somewhere. You may love, you know, you may be at JP Morgan, love their bank. Doesn't mean you have to store all your savings there. You keep a little bit there just to keep your relationship. But then do there's plenty of online banks right now, FDIC insured, et cetera. Mm-hmm. That'll be happy to pay you on your on yeah, your deposits. I, I, ideally, you need to be using those institutions for your, your day-to-day activities, your credit cards, your checking account. Uh, hopefully using your credit cards, earning miles, getting points, paying it off each and every month, using the savings or, or the savings somewhere else. So you mentioned that the average industry interest rate right now is 037 but at Chase, their premier standard rates are 0.01. Yep. Now, if you have a premier relationship, they will double that. The 0.02. The 0.02. <laughs> Correct. So you're getting absolutely nothing. So unless you, you're going to need these funds like really quick, go find somebody that's going to pay you for it. Because that's why you talk about earnings. Mm-hmm. You, know, you mentioned this, what they're bringing in versus what they're paying out. That is a big number. Well, and, and and maybe if, you know, this is kind of like with what's going on with Bud Light right now. Um, obviously, people making, you know, making a vote with their dollars and mm-hmm. saying, we're not going to buy Bud Light because we don't agree with your views. If, if enough depositors start taking money out of these major banks and moving it somewhere else where they can get a higher return on deposits, trust me, the banks are going to wake up and pay attention and go, yeah, maybe we should start paying our depositors some money to keep them here. Because look, at the end of the day, they need those deposits. It, regardless of anything else, they're a fractional reserve banking system. So mm-hmm. they need those deposits in order to loan that money out to make to, to create business loans or whatever it is. And if you extract enough of those deposits, that creates that stress on the bank to where they have to make a choice either to start paying you or doing something else, right? But Lance, if I move my money, I'm going to lose my private client status. You may. Whatever it is. That's the argument I always make. What are you getting for it? What do you actually use from that? Many people don't use hardly any of the actual services, and they're very minimal. They're actually what they should be providing you anyway. And the interest you would be making somewhere else, uh, depending on the dollar amount, I'd probably make an argument that you'd be better off getting more yield, paying the $35 wire fee or whatever it is that you may do once a year. Yep, there you go. All right, that wraps up the show for the day. Danny, thanks so much. Uh, get by the website, Michael Leibowitz's latest article. It's part two on this whole notion of the death of the dollar and why that may not necessarily be the case. So if that's something that's been weighing on you, Mike's written a really good two-piece article over the last uh, two weeks covering that. Uh, So go to the website now, realinvestmentadvice.com. Click on that article. While you're there, send your questions, comments, emails. We're always happy to help you any way that we can. If you have questions about retirement planning, et cetera, Danny stays up all night answering those emails. So be sure and send lots of them for Danny. Um, We'll make sure and get those to him. Anyway, have a great day. We'll see you tomorrow uh, right here on The Real Investment Show.